Just tell me what. Just going to let people get their audio connected for a minute. Perfect. Welcome, everybody, to another Science Demystified with Dr. Joe Schwartz. Go right ahead. Well, thanks very much. I think we have an interesting topic for you. This Well, I think we always have interesting topics for you. Anyway, we're gonna take a look at how the media depict science and particularly medical science. Of course, the first question we have to ask is what do we mean by media? Well, of course, uh, uh, we're pretty familiar with it now. It's whatever communication outlet we have and the tools that we use to disseminate information, store information, etc. And of course, uh, for us right now, uh, a lot of talk about social media, you know, websites and Twitter and Facebook and all of that. Uh, but that's just only one aspect of, of media. Media is any method by which information can be conveyed. So of course, if we go back historically, it would be the written word. Uh, the oldest such document dates back to 1500 BC, as far as you know, anything scientific is concerned. And that is the rather famous Ebers Papyrus which was discovered in Egypt. And uh, this has been decoded. The hieroglyphics uh, have been uh, translated. And it's pretty interesting because it really would be the, the first textbook of, of medicine. And in it, uh, mention is made of the use of the uh, opium poppy, which of course gives us morphine. It was used to enhance sleep. And uh, they also mention cannabis. And uh, that, of course, uh, a lot of information about that today. But in those, in those days, they used it as a medicine for all kinds of, of, of treatments. Now, some of the treatments that are depicted in the Ebers papyrus are pretty interesting. For example, guinea worm disease. Wrap the emerging end of the worm around the stick and slowly pull it out. And you know what? This is still the remedy that is used today. So they had some clever things in back in those days. Of course, people were just as clever as they are today. They just didn't have all of the tools that we have today. Uh, but there were also some less uh, solid advice in the Ebers Papyrus. For example, half an onion and the froth of beer, a delightful remedy against death. Well, I don't think they literally meant remedy against death because even back then they knew that nobody gets out of life alive. Uh, so this was just uh, telling us, uh, you know, what to eat to be healthier. But uh, there's really no evidence that a mixture of onion and beer froth would do that. So uh, some of the earliest media reports were on, you know, on tablets and then on papyrus, etc. But some were also on reliefs on walls. Uh, and uh, in this particular case, here's an Egyptian, uh, possibly doctor, asking a god 
because of course they believed in the uh, idea that illnesses were afflicted by gods and could also be cured by them and is asking the the god which particular remedy uh, probably some herbal thing they should use. Uh, the media, of course, also involved uh, statues because this was one way that in ancient times they, they could preserve information about a, a person. So Asclepius, oh, that wasn't really a person, but uh, the mythical god of, of health uh, in Greek mythology. But uh, the Greeks uh, believed in, in gods. And uh, Asclepius was the uh, god of, of, of health and, and, and disease. And when people got sick, they would go to what were called Asclepia. And these really were sort of uh, early versions of, of hospitals where they would go. And here's one that still, the remnants of it still exist. As this is the Asclepian in, on the island of Kos in, in, in Greece. And uh, they would come and uh, seek advice from the priests who were here, uh, who supposedly could uh, help them. And uh, the patients would sleep in, in these uh, Asclepia, as depicted in this painting here. And uh, if they had any dreams, these dreams would be interpreted by, uh, by the healers. And interestingly enough, snakes were also thought to have uh, healing abilities. And uh, non-venomous snakes were very popular and just slither across the floors in, in these Asclepia and thought that they had some sort of uh, uh, healing effect. So uh, artwork, of course, gives us some idea of what uh, was happening in the early days of, of medicine. Hippocrates, uh, regarded as the father of uh, modern medicine, and uh, there is a lot of controversy about that. Uh, it is not even totally agreed upon that uh, Hippocrates was an actual person. Uh, it may have been a conglomeration of, of a lot of physicians at that, uh, at that time. And uh, anyway, Hippocrates supposedly came from the island of Kos, and uh, his importance is that uh, he did not believe that diseases were caused by gods. And he thought that uh, they were imbalances in humors in the body and that these could be remedied usually by taking some sort of herbal uh, products. The importance that psychology played in medicine uh, was also known in ancient times. As we can see from this uh, Roman uh, relief, here's the doctor uh, just putting his hands on the patient. And as we know, very often, if the doctor just says, you're gonna be okay, there's nothing really wrong. You already feel a little bit better, even though there has been no physical uh, intervention. In terms of actual physical intervention, again, we have, um, lots of uh, examples in the contemporary media. For example, in ancient Roman times, they knew how to sew up wounds, how to remove objects from wounds as is, uh, as is shown here. Uh, unfortunately, 
uh, they didn't know anything about infection in those days and uh, they uh, didn't know anything about sterilizing instruments. So sometimes the therapy would um, uh, be more dangerous than the, uh, than the original uh, injury. In the Middle Ages, doctors uh, certainly had some interventional methods. In this case, uh, probably uh, blocked uh, urinary tract and uh, attempts here to insert a catheter. Although one would think that the patient would not be so calmly uh, standing by when this procedure was done. We also know again from uh, uh, artwork that they paid a lot of attention to urine, the color of, of urine, and uh, try to relate this to, to health. And of course, there is something to that because there are many tests that can be done on urine, but uh, just a visual inspection would not have done very much. Much better would have been taking the pulse of a patient, which doctors did back then as well, as we can see from, uh, from this painting. Now we learn a lot about the history of medicine from paintings, portraits. Dr. Edward Jenner, who of course was the, the father of vaccination. The word vaccine comes from the Latin word vaca, which means cow, because Jenner discovered that milkmaids who suffered from a type of infection, although of course he didn't know what infection was, but a type of disease that was called cowpox, never developed smallpox. And he had the idea of taking pus from the uh, wounds of, uh, uh, on, on the skin of people who had cowpox and injecting that into others to try to prevent them from getting smallpox. And of course it worked, but it was not immediately accepted. And we know this from contemporary media as well. James Gill Ray, a famed cartoonist uh, drew this picture where you can see what is happening to these poor folks who have been treated with the cowpox extract. And you can see there are cows coming out of their noses, coming out of their heads, coming out of their arms. So this was uh, essentially uh, depicting the fear that people had at that time from because of vaccination, very much like they have today. Uh, James Gilray uh, was excellent at kind of portraying uh, the science, the medical science of the time and concerns about it. Um, in the same era here, uh, this rather uh, intriguing and famous painting where the doctor is trying to cure the patient with these so-called tractors. And uh, these specifically, the, what you see him holding there were these Elijah Perkins tractors, which were metal rods that were supposed to draw the disease out of the uh, patient. Of course, they did nothing other than perhaps serve as a placebo. What we also do know from uh, artwork is that very often doctors were thought to be in league with poisoners or were themselves poisoners because there were so many questions asked about the medicines that were being used. 
they would use arsenicals, for example. And of course, it's pretty easy to overdose on those. Mercury compounds were used and they were highly toxic as well. So sometimes the treatment was more deadly than the disease. And uh, doctors were not always worshipped like they are today. And again, we can see that in this uh, uh, painting where the doctor in his house is being attacked by patients who were very unhappy with the treatment that they had received from him. And as you can see, he's using a hypodermic syringe there to try to uh, shoo them away. Well, these of course were negative images of physicians, but uh, there were also positive ones. And this one here, look at this one carefully. It's a very interesting painting where the child is obviously sick and the uh, father is in the background, uh, obviously worried. And the doctor uh, is very pensive. Uh, seems that he doesn't really know uh, what to do. This painting takes us back to 1891 and it was by uh, Luke uh, Fieldays. And uh, you know, it's a Victorian times and the doctor is, is looking at this child who is ill. And um, I think the message is that doctors did really not know very much about what to do to help the sick back in those days and uh, his own son had died from typhoid fever, so he's very uh, contemplative. But at least it, it does project the image of um, care, that the, uh, the bedside manners here seem to be uh, pretty good. And uh, the doctor is uh, expressing uh, empathy. Of course, depending on what the disease was, empathy wasn't always enough. When uh, there was an infection that required surgery, the patient had to be held down. There was no other way to, to um, stop him from uh, wriggling around and, and screaming. And they knew in those days that, that if they did not amputate an infected limb, then the patient would die. But can you imagine what it was like? Uh, exactly like this painting shows. It was an absolute nightmare. Until 1846, when we come to the first medical photograph, because so far everything that we've talked about here has been reliefs and statues and, and uh, papyrus uh, paintings, but now for the first time in 1846, we come to an actual photograph. And this was the first use of anesthesia. Ether was the substance that was being used. This picture is actually not of the actual surgery. It was taken the day after they had to repose because there was no photographer around on that day. But the personalities are all the same. This was uh, uh, an operation on a tumor on the neck of the patient. And the operation was carried out by Dr. John Colin Warren. And you see him in the left of the picture here with the white uh, uh, beard. And um, William Morton is seen at the back holding the ether inhaler. 
And this certainly was a momentous event. The first time that surgery was carried out uh, with a patient asleep and the patient woke up after, which was a decided plus. Within a few days, there were other surgeries carried out. And here is another photograph of one of those. This was just a few days after the initial operation. And this shows the uh, patient being prepped for uh, surgery. And uh, uh, the inhalation in this case was quite primitive. The uh, doctor is holding a sponge that had been soaked in ether that is just about ready to be clamped over the face of the patient. Now, given the fact that this picture was taken in 1846, pretty high quality. And then along came movies. The Edison kinetograms. And uh, this was one of the ideas uh, that Edison had. And of course he had thousands of ideas. This uh, was not one of his better ones. Photography, of course, had been introduced and the Lumiere brothers in, in France had uh, shown how sequential photographs uh, shown very quickly could be made into a film. And uh, they even had ideas of projecting that on a screen. Edison did not pursue that because he thought that he wanted each of his customers to individually pay for watching a movie. So he designed these machines where the film was inside of the machine, it would be turned with a handle and only a single person could look in at, at one time. It didn't work out quite well. But the reason that I bring it up because the very first movie that was made was made by Edison and it was a science oriented movie because it was all about Frankenstein. Frankenstein, of course, was the creation of uh, young uh, Mary Shelley, who wrote the book at the young age of 18. It was a very popular book and Edison decided to make it into a film. You can actually see the film if you Google it, just Google Frankenstein Edison, it will come up. But I show you a couple of uh, interesting stills from the film. Uh, here is Frankenstein, just about ready to conjure up the, uh, the monster. Now there's a considerable poetic license that is being taken here because uh, Mary Shelley did not uh, uh, describe how the creature was brought back to, to life. But in this case, it was some sort of chemical concoction. And you see Frankenstein here, uh, mixing it, throwing it into the fire. There's smoke and, and flame and the creature emerges out of the, the fire and then has a confrontation with uh, Frankenstein. Now the image of the creation is not the one that uh, most people today have in, in, their, uh, in their head. Uh, this is what he looked like uh, when it was made up for that original film. Uh, and of course, this is not the image that, uh, that we know that we have. The image that most people have of the uh, Frankenstein creation is that of Boris Karloff. Now there's something very important to point out here because we're talking about all of this in the context of, of medical uh, science. 
this is not Frankenstein. Frankenstein was the creator and he was not a doctor. He was a medical student whose mother had died and um, he was very taken by that. And he started to think about life and death and the possibility of bringing people back from the dead. The uh, experiment in the movie, uh, again, uh, is a lot of poetic license because Mary Shelley does not describe it. Uh, other than the fact that there was a spark of life that was used to bring the creature to life, although it is not exactly clear whether she went, meant spark in a metaphorical sense or in a literal sense. Now, it could have been literal because Mary Shelley was familiar with the work of Giovanni Aldini, who was an Italian anatomist. And he had followed in the uh, footsteps of, um, of uh, Alessandro Volta and uh, Luigi Galvani. Uh, who had invented the battery. And he put this to a use. He took a battery and he connected electrodes to a dead person and actually caused muscular movements. The eye would open, muscles would twitch in response to the electric current. And you can imagine that this was very impressive and frightening to the Victorian audiences because it certainly looked like there was life being infused into that corpse. Well, of course, there wasn't. It's just that you can actually trigger muscular movements with electricity, even in a, a dead body. But the movie um, and the story of, uh, of Frankenstein uh, is a classic because it kind of thinks about the limits of science. And I think Mary Shelley's idea is in fact uh, encapsulated in, in the poster for the movie that of course came much later. And when you see on the left side here, the monster that science created but could not destroy. And it is the idea that, that you know science is like a double-edged sword and you're never sure uh, what is going to happen. On one hand, it can do good such as you know, bringing the creature back to life, but on the other hand, it did not turn out so well. Now this theme uh, is very, very apparent in uh, many examples of, of, of the media, including the 1886 book uh, by um, Robert Louis Stevenson, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, one of the most famous stories uh, in medical science. And uh, this also was made into a movie in 1931, starring Friedrich March. Now, most of these uh, uh, older movies uh, you can find uh, on one of the streaming services, or if you uh, are adept at you know, going around YouTube and, and Google, you can find, find them. And it is certainly worthwhile uh, watching them. Although cinematic production is, is obviously not up to the level that we have today, but the stories are, are, are very good. And in many cases, it shows that you don't need all of the super special effects in order to uh, come up with a captivating 
film. Well, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde tells a story of Dr. Jekyll who uh, comes up with this magical concoction that changes him into Mr. Hyde. Dr. Jekyll is a very good man, but uh, Mr. Hyde is not. And the uh, obvious uh, interpretation of this is that each of us has two personalities and one of them may be locked inside until some special event releases it. So that was an interesting theme. But what is also fascinating is to think about uh, what could have triggered authors to write their classic works. And in this particular case, there, there is a, a possible uh, example of, of uh, why Stevenson chose this particular theme. At the time, there was a, a very interesting criminal case of Eugene Chantrell, who had uh, poisoned his young wife, uh, Elizabeth uh, uh, Chantrell, and they uh, did not have a happy marriage, and uh, he killed her. Stevenson was very good friends with Chantrell for years, and he just could not imagine that the man that he knew was the same man who committed the murder. And yet the evidence was overwhelming about the murder. And uh, this may have had such an impact on Stevenson that it gave rise to the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Another possibility has emerged too. And that is the story of Dr. John Hunter who was an extremely famous doctor in Stevenson's time and a brilliant anatomist. anatomist. But in those days, it was very difficult to obtain bodies to do dissections and to learn from them medically. And John Hunter, like other doctors, would pay grave robbers to bring him bodies. And he had a large mansion. And the grave robbers would always enter through the back door so that nobody would see them. And his famous patients, like Benjamin Franklin, would come in the front door into his uh, uh, surgery. So Stevenson looked at him as kind of being double-sided as well. Criminal on one side, dealing with stolen corpses, and a good physician on the other side. The uh, 1930s had a number of other scientific-based films. For example, the story of Louis Pasteur. Uh, I would certainly recommend that you find and watch this movie. Uh, maybe the library even has a, a version of this that you can take out. This was in 1936, and Paul Mooney, a very well-known actor at that time, uh, portrayed Louis Pasteur and the reviews were uh, sensational uh, about this film. It was very, very highly regarded. <clears throat> it tells the story of Louis Pasteur. And as you may know, uh, Pasteur had some run-in, certainly early on with the medical establishment. And as uh, accurately portrayed in the film, uh, a fictional Dr. Chardonnay who represents the medical establishment at that time took issue with Pasteur and his ideas about cleanliness and about how disease could be transmitted by organisms that people were unable to see at the time. 
And one of the most insulting statements made by the fictional Dr. Chardonnay was, but you are a mere chemist. That is that Pasteur was not a physician and therefore there was no reason to believe anything that he said. Well, indeed, Pasteur was a chemist, an exceptional one. And his early career was totally focused on chemistry. Uh, he was really the first one to understand that molecules could exist in mirror image forms. And he did this by looking at crystals of tartaric acid, which actually exist in mirror image forms, as you can see here. And from this, he insinuated that this must be the case because the molecules of which they are composed are themselves mirror images, which turns out to be correct. He also did extensive research into fermentation and uh, discovered that the reason that uh, wine and beer would spoil is because some rogue microorganisms, some rogue yeasts got into solution. And he demonstrated very cleverly that if you were careful and excluded air from a fermenting mixture, then it would never go astray. It wouldn't turn into, into vinegar. And this was a, a major contribution uh, because at the time there were a lot of concerns in France because wine was turning sour. Also properly shown in the movie is Louis Pasteur's battle to solve the problem of anthrax. Anthrax was the disease that affected sheep. And it turns out that it's caused by a, a bacterium and the bacterium is found in the soil and the sheep were infected by grazing on land that had uh, anthrax. Uh, the establishment did not believe that uh, anthrax was caused by these unseen microbes that uh, Pasteur had suggested. And it was only when he developed a, a vaccine uh, for anthrax that he was able to convince the scientific community at the time. And um, he discovered that if he injected uh, uh, sheep with a, a version of, uh, of an extract from sheep that had been infected, then the uninfected sheep would not come down with the disease. The classic idea of vaccination. And only when he was able to demonstrate in a proper trial where he took 25 sheep, infected them with uh, uh, anthrax, vaccinated them, and did not vaccinate another 25 who were infected and showed that the vaccine had protected those sheep. That's when doctors accepted his ideas. And of course, today we understand that Pasteur uh, is really the, the father of the germ theory of disease. And this is really very well portrayed and very well explained in the movie. Now Pasteur already was familiar with the work of Ignaz Semmelweis, a Hungarian physician who had discovered that washing hands was critical in medicine. That was a very interesting story because what he found that in a hospital where women were giving birth, if they were attended to by nurses, they were far more successful than being attended to by doctors. And that was because sometimes the doctors would come straight from the anatomy lab or from an operation 
and didn't wash hands. They didn't know anything about microbes in those days and they would infect the patients. And Semmelweis uh, had the idea of washing hands and he was, uh, Pasteur was very familiar with this and spread this idea, which again, wasn't all that popular at the time until Joseph Lister, who was perhaps the most famous physician in England at that time, bought into Pasteur's idea and uh, decided that cleanliness in the operating room was, was critical and even sprayed a disinfecting agent phenol around in the uh, operating room. Uh, indeed, uh, at the end of uh, Pasteur's career, near the end of his life, he was celebrated in France for all of his breakthroughs. And that celebration uh, was uh, uh, involved uh, uh, Lister, who had come from England and uh, to pay homage to Pasteur. Uh, this is a movie that is really worthwhile seeing because most of it uh, depicts the story in a very, very accurate way. I mean, of course, there always are some liberties uh, taken as you have to do in, in a movie because you obviously have to compress a lot into uh, an hour and a half or so. The movie about, about Pasteur was followed by a movie in 1944, The Great Moment. And it really was a great moment because it depicted the discovery of anesthesia, perhaps the most important discovery ever because pain of course is our greatest scourge. And if you can resolve pain somehow, you can certainly improve life, especially when it comes to surgery. The Great Moment is mostly accurate historically, and it tells the story of William Morton, a dentist who is credited with the discovery of ether as an anesthetic. Now, ether at that time was, was known as a solvent because it actually can be quite readily made from alcohol. And alcohol is uh, the product of fermentation, of course, one of the oldest chemicals uh, known. Now in the movie, uh, the story is that, that uh, uh, Morton had fallen asleep and the container of ether that he had left on the table evaporated and uh, this extended his sleep and uh, he had a hard time waking up and this is how he discovered uh, ether as uh, an anesthetic. <clears throat> Now that is, is not the way that it really happened. And it's not the way that it happened in, 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 in the movie either. Uh, the, uh, in, the, in the movie, he seeks help from a professor at Harvard University, a professor of, of, of chemistry. Uh, Morton was familiar with the fact that a colleague of his, Horace Wells, had used nitrous oxide as an anesthetic, although it didn't work too well. And he went to ask uh, Professor Jackson at Harvard whether or not he had any idea about what he could try. And the way the film depicts this is that Jackson said, try some ethyl chloride. And William Morton went to a pharmacist and by mistake, the pharmacist gave him ether. He took that home and that's the one that evaporated in front of the fireplace and, and put him to sleep. I don't know why they came up with that, that story because it is inaccurate. 
the fact is that Jackson actually told him to try ether because he had some experience with ether in the lab and he had noticed his, his uh, its sleep inducing uh, properties. It's also um, somewhat troublesome that Jackson in the movie is depicted as a little bit of a mad scientist, which he certainly was not. He was a very legitimate uh, uh, chemist and uh, knew a great deal of science and certainly was not sort of the, the uh, stereotypical mad scientist the way that he is uh, depicted in, in the movie. The rest of the movie though is, is, is good. And here is Morton uh, demonstrating the ether inhaler uh, that he designed. And indeed, uh, uh, they may even have used uh, the actual one, which, which exists in, uh, in a museum in, uh, in Boston, or they made an exact replica of it because that's what the original ether inhaler really looked like. And in the film, he is shown here uh, demonstrating it to Eben Frost, who was the first person whoever was anesthetized with either ether uh, by Morton, but that was uh, to have a tooth pulled. And that was before the classic demonstration at Massachusetts General Hospital. Uh, a, a very important point though, that really is basically missed in the movie, that four years before Morton's classic use of ether at Massachusetts General, Dr. Crawford Long, a family practitioner in Georgia, had used ether to put people to sleep and had carried out some minor surgery. Unfortunately, he never published it. Morton was the first one to publish it, so it certainly pays to, to publish. But there's no question that that moment in 1846 when ether was first used as anesthetic was indeed a great moment. And you may have also have seen a, a picture, a, a painting of that great moment, which uh, again uh, hangs uh, uh, today in Boston in Massachusetts General Hospital. And uh, it is the painting that shows the actual operation. And we saw earlier, we saw the photograph uh, of the recreation of the uh, operation. But here you see the surgeon, John Collins Warren, uh, actually slicing into the tumor and uh, there is uh, uh, Morton holding the uh, ether inhaler. Uh, a very interesting movie, certainly well worth seeing. As is Edward G. Robinson in Dr. Ehrlich's Magic Bullet, 1940. Interesting for several reasons. One is that this was not one of uh, Edward G. Robinson's typical roles. He would usually play a bad guy, a, a, a mobster. But here he plays Dr. Paul Ehrlich, who was uh, one of the fathers of uh, immunology, uh, the use of uh, antibiotics, uh, not antibiotics as we know today, but he in fact developed the first substance ever that will, had the ability of uh, combating uh, bacteria. So uh, Edward G. Robinson, plays uh, Dr. Paul Ehrlich in, in the movie. And uh, again, the science is, is, is pretty sound. It is made clear how he gets interested in the uh, problem of, uh, of microbes. Uh, microscopy at the time was already well established and they would 
take samples of blood, for example, and put it under a microscope and look at it. And in order to see what was going on better on that microscope slide, they would sometimes use a dye that would highlight some of the features on the, on the slide. And as we see in, in, in the movie, Ehrlich discovers that some of the novel synthetic dyes that were uh, developed uh, in, uh, in England at that time by William Henry Perkin, that when he put these on, on a microscope slide, some of the dye uh, concentrated in the microorganisms, in the bacteria, making them much more visible under the microscope. And um, he talked about this to Robert Koch, who at that time was the leading expert on uh, microbes, following in the footsteps of, of Louis Pasteur. And he had discovered that tuberculosis was caused by a bacterium. He had actually seen this bacterium under the microscope. And when um, it was discovered that these dyes could make the bacteria more visible under the microscope, as Ehrlich had shown, uh, Koch and Ehrlich had an idea. And that was maybe somehow you could change that dye so that it would include some toxic substance. And then that would be specifically delivered to the bacterium the same way that the dye was. Uh, this was an intriguing idea for Ehrlich, who at that time was interested in infections of all kinds, even though they, at that time, they really weren't sure of, you know, how infections were manifested. But he had been working with Emil von Behring, another German physician, on uh, another problem at the time, which was diphtheria, which is a, a bacterial disease. And what they discovered was that horses could be infected with diphtheria. And if their blood were drawn and stored for a while, it would act as a treatment in someone who was suffering from diphtheria. So this was a fascinating uh, new idea, uh, which of course was pursued by Ehrlich, along with the most famous idea, which is shown in the movie. And uh, this of course did involve chemical work. Ehrlich essentially uh, was a chemist by background, although he did have a, a medical degree. So his idea was to take a dye, and he knew that the dye would be specific for bacteria because they saw this under the microscope, and to attach some sort of toxic element to that dye so that it would poison bacteria and hopefully leave the other tissues around unchanged. And he tried and he tried and eventually discovered that if he was able to combine the dye with arsenic, the arsenic would poison the bacterium. And he came up with something called salversan or the chemical name arsphenamine. And this really was the world's first antibiotic. It worked against syphilis, which is a bacterial disease. The story that is told is that um, he carried out 605 experiments unsuccessfully trying different combinations of dyes and poisons 
and on the 606th came up with the right idea. Well, that's a very fascinating story. And it is true that at first Salversan was called number 606, but it's not because there had been 605 other trials. There had been a series of six trials labeled 100, 200, 300, 400, 500. And it was the sixth experiment in the six series uh, that gave the positive result. Anyway, that's not really that significant, but, but uh, it's not true that he tied 605 times before being successful. It's also interesting, as shown in the movie, that uh, he had help from a Japanese researcher. And that was unusual in those days that uh, Japanese would come and work in a lab in, in, in Germany. But Sahachiro Hata does deserve a lot of credit for helping come up with uh, Salversan. Now, when this movie was released, US had not yet gotten into a war with Germany. And Germany was um, a great place to sell American movies. They were very popular there. So what's the connection here? Ehrlich was Jewish. And by 1940, the Nazis had wiped out all of his accomplishments because of course they did not want to give credit to any, any Jew. So there was the question of how to handle this in the, in the film, because they didn't want to upset German audiences who would be watching this movie. So there was no reference made really, uh, except one oblique one in the movie to Ehrlich's uh, uh, background which uh, uh, of course, historically is uh, interesting and important because uh, much of the work that he carried out uh, you know, was done in the 1930s and the Nazis tried to just illuminate his name from all of the uh, research. Eventually he did win the Nobel prize in uh, 1908, uh, along with uh, Mechnikov, the, the Russian, uh, who was also involved in uh, immunological uh, research, uh, yogurt, for example, and the idea that fermented foods were healthy. And interestingly enough, in 1908, the physics prize went to Ernest Rutherford, uh, which we're always happy to talk about here at McGill because some of that work was indeed done here. All right, moving along historically, in 1949, uh, movie, uh, Dr. Laneck. Again, you can find this on the internet and very interesting. He was a French physician and uh, most people have not heard of him, even though should have, because he basically invented the stethoscope. Interesting story here. One day was called to a, a lady who was rather well endowed and he was kind of embarrassed to put his ear to her chest to listen. And he found that he rolled up a newspaper and listened through that and he could hear it pretty well. That was the beginning of the stethoscope. And uh, he, by all accounts, was a very good man, great bedside matters, lots of empathy as shown in the film. And uh, this film, Dr. Lanek had rave reviews. And uh, it was one of the films that, you know, introduced the general public to advances in medicine. So remember that in, in those days, most people were not highly educated. 
but they did go to movies. And uh, movies about Paul Ehrlich and about Dr. Lenek and about the discovery of anesthesia were the way that people learned about some of these uh, amazing discoveries. Jumping ahead to 1987, the race for the double helix. Uh, this of course tells the story of uh, Watson and Crick and the discovery of the structure of, uh, of DNA. The, uh, the movie is uh, quite accurate historically. And interesting enough, the, the actors even look like the, uh, the real uh, people. Uh, Watson and Crick, of course, were uh, critical in, in the discovery of the structure of, of DNA, but they could have not done it without uh, Rosalind Franklin and Morris Wilkins, who were crystallographers. And it was actually Rosalind Franklin who did the crystallographic work, that is the x-ray pictures of, of crystals of DNA with the famous pictures here that uh, gave the clue uh, about the three-dimensional structure and the uh, double helix of, uh, of DNA. Interesting enough, Linus Pauling in the US uh, almost had the structure of DNA correct before uh, uh, Crick and Watson. Uh, all by himself, but Crick and Watson uh, beat him to, uh, to that. Now, in 1952, uh, Crick and Watson and Wilkins received the Nobel Prize for their discovery. Uh, unfortunately, uh, they were the only ones to get the uh, Nobel uh, Prize for this. And even though Rosalind Franklin had done the, the work uh, she was not honored with the, uh, the prize. She could have been. Uh, a lot of people say it is because um, the Nobel Prize cannot be given posthumously. She had died by, uh, she died at a very early age from cancer. And it is true that in 1960, she was not alive. It is also true that the Nobel Prize today cannot be awarded posthumously. However, that regulation was only introduced in the 1970s. So in 1962, Rosalind Franklin indeed could have and should have received uh, the Nobel Prize. Why she didn't, hard to say. Of course, uh, there's the argument that uh, she was a woman and uh, she didn't get it because of, of that. She really should have got it. The CBC uh, put out an excellent uh, movie about uh, a discovery that we in Canada here can be very proud of. Glory Enough for All tells the story of the discovery of insulin uh, by two doctors uh, in Canada, Best and Banning, of course, uh, whose early work was done with the pancreas of dogs. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, animal rights people objected to that, but uh, this was one of the greatest discoveries uh, ever. And the story of Best and Banting is told very, very well in this movie. And this one you can see on uh, uh, the CBC's GEM network, and you don't even have to uh, pay for it. It is really an excellent uh, uh, production. It doesn't have that typical CBC look to it. it it's a really a very, very high caliber movie. And I would really suggest you watch this because it tells the story really quite accurately. 
Uh, again, there are a few little issues that I have with it. Uh, for example, the fact is that the first time that insulin was ever used was on a young boy in Toronto by the name of Leonard Thompson, very successfully. That is not mentioned in the movie at all. Instead, they kind of imply that the first time it was ever used was on um, uh, Elizabeth Hughes, who was the daughter of uh, the Secretary of State uh, of the US. And I guess that makes for a much better um, uh, connection because the Secretary of State was famous. But other than that, uh, it tells the story of the discovery of insulin uh, very well. In 1990, Robert De Niro and Robin Williams start in Awakenings. And this really is a, a, a true story based on the experiences of Oliver Sacks, who was a, a neurologist of fame, not only as a neurologist, but also as a writer. And um, he examined patients who suffered from something called encephalitis lethargica, which was epidemic in the uh, 1917, 1918, 1919 era, that is in, during the First uh, World War. And uh, at that time, they had no treatment for this condition, which would essentially freeze patients. So their muscular movements were, they had essentially no muscular movements. And as they uh, tell correctly in the movie, uh, he discovered that using L-DOPA, the same drug that is used in the treatment of uh, Parkinson's disease, would uh, allow these patients to move. Unfortunately, it had a very short uh, effect and they reverted back to their uh, original state. But uh, once again, I recommend this movie because it is historically and scientifically accurate. Uh, 1992 brought us Lorenzo's Oil, a heartbreaking movie uh, about a disease that most people have not heard of, adrenal leukodystrophy. Uh, it affected young Lorenzo uh, right after birth. It's a condition that robs you of all movement, but your brain still functions. Uh, this is one of these locked in conditions and the parents do everything to try to, to find a solution to this because there was no medical solution. They organized conferences, they scoured libraries to see what could be done and eventually came up with something that uh, taking a, a mixture of fatty acids that eventually came to be called Lorenzo's oil did have some effect. It was not a huge effect but it did allow Lorenzo to live well into his 20s, which was unusual. Uh, Peter Ustinov stars in the movie as Professor Gus Nicolais. And uh, that's a, a depiction of uh, Dr. Hugo Moser, who really worked with the, uh, with the family, the Odones. And, and uh, again, uh, a movie well worth watching because you will learn something about this rare disease and the, the tremendous effort that the boy's parents made to try to find a, a solution. A very, very good movie. Far better than 1992's Medicine Man, uh, starring Sean Connery. Uh, I like Sean Connery, of course, he was James Bond, but it, this movie is not that good. Uh, 
it, the story is, is kind of interesting because it's all about uh, searching for drugs in plants. And uh, he comes across a medicine man who um, has accidentally discovered a drug that can be used to treat uh, uh, cancer. Uh, the, the science here is, is not so strong. It is, it is way too simplified. Uh, but at least the idea of looking for uh, plants as possible therapeutic agent, that of course is very realistic. But if you want to watch a more entertaining movie about Medicine Man, <laughs> this is a, a much older movie, of course, but the reason it's so interesting is because Jack Benny stars in it. He didn't star in many movies. This was before the Jack Benny radio show and the Jack Benny uh, TV show. It was one of the first talking uh, movies. So it is historical, uh, even though it, uh, you know, it doesn't have any real science in it, but does this, tells the story of a medicine man uh, who, these medicine men basically were charlatans, you know, who would uh, sell their snake oil uh, in public uh, displays. I would, however, recommend that you do look at 1994's Mesmer, which tells the story of Franz Anton Mesmer, a physician in Vienna, uh, from whom, of course, we get the term mesmerism, because his uh, really recognition of the important role that the mind plays in what happens in the body. Uh, the movie tells the story of how a blind Maria Theresa von Paradis's vision was brought back miraculously by Mesmer. Uh, the idea being that it was a psychological impairment and uh, Mesmer was able to, to uh, overcome this. Uh, that is actually a true story. It is also true that Mesmer set up healing salons where patients would come to be cured of diseases that they probably never had by holding on to magnetized rods. And these were supposed to draw the disease out of their body. And historically, <clears throat> the, uh, the picture is, uh, is quite accurate. Uh, although it does not present uh, Mesmer in a very uh, good light. Uh, but of course, we don't really know what, uh, what he was like. But if you want to learn something about the relationship between the body and the mind, this is a good film to, to watch. Also, I would highly recommend 2009's Breaking the Mold by the BBC. And this tells the story, Race Against Death, the discovery of penicillin. Now, most people, of course, know the story of Alexander Fleming and how he discovered uh, that a, a mold had accidentally flown into his Petri dish and killed the bacteria around it. But he didn't do anything with this. He was not able to isolate what the active ingredient was. It was a decade later that Howard Florey and Ernst Chain, with the help of Norman Heatley, who was excellent at culturing things, that they were able to isolate penicillin, growing the culture in lots of bedpans. And uh, the movie, uh, again, accurately tells this whole story, including the story of the first patient ever treated with penicillin, 
That was uh, Alexander Albert, a policeman who had developed an infection when he was stuck with the thorn of a rose and he was treated with uh, penicillin. They uh, also uh, very uh, accurately show how mice were used in uh, experiments with uh, penicillin. And I like the movie because they even have some of the personalities and, and you know, these, the sort of behind the scenes life of these scientists, including the fact that Ethel Flory, who was Flory's wife, helped with the research in the same lab that Margaret Jennings worked, who was Flory's mistress. So that must have been quite a situation. Uh, finally, the, the movie um, tells us how eventually penicillin was produced on a large scale after a cantaloupe infected with a penicillin mold was discovered in Peoria, Illinois by Moldy Mary, as she came to be called. And uh, this led to the production of large scale amounts of penicillin, which helped turn the Second World War around. And uh, Fleming, Flory, and Chaim received the Nobel Prize uh, for this. So I, I, I hope that uh, I've been able to interest you and stimulate you into checking out some of these films because you can certainly learn a great deal of science and medicine uh, from watching movies. So if anyone has any questions or comments, uh, certainly we can try to deal with them. We are open to questions. Please put your questions in the chat or the Q&A feature. The library still has some uh, DVDs, right? Yep, we have DVDs and surprisingly enough, VHSs. Yeah, we also the... subscribe to Canopy, which is um, a streaming service and Hoopla. Yes, I, I, I wonder if you could uh, find uh, if some of these movies are available in the library. I mean, I, I, especially I, uh, Dr. Ehrlich's Magic Bullet. I, I think would be a, a great interest as would the, uh, uh, well, I mean, all, all of the ones I've talked about, I think would be interesting, but uh, particularly Dr. Ehrlich's uh, uh, and uh, the Louis, story of Louis Pasteur, those would be great if people could uh, watch those. Hmm, don't see the magic Bullet. I'm looking up the Louis Pasteur. We definitely have books about him, but uh, we'd have to check the streaming services. Yeah, That's where these things tend to to hide. Right, and and uh, uh, I I think actually the uh, Louis Pasteur I think is available on YouTube. That's great. Free. Yeah. Free. So I'm not seeing any questions. Seems you said nothing that was overly contentious. No, I don't think anything contentious here. And they're probably now searching where they can find some of these films. <laughs> <laughs> well, always Perfect. check YouTube because uh, many of these are, are there. Someone will have posted, uh, posted it. Yeah, until they get taken 
down, take a look. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. It's See been you a pleasure. next month. See you next month. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Bye. Have a great Monday. Bye.